morning. The book of Numbers is a book all about life in the wilderness. It's a life of dependence. Living in the desert for the people of Israel was a life of depending on God for everything. Where to go, how to eat, how to drink, everything that they would do. They were dependent and trusting in God. Life in the wilderness is also this life in between. These people of Israel had been delivered from their slavery in Egypt, but they're heading towards the promised land, but they're not there yet. So they're in this moment in between, and that whole life in between is this life of trusting in God. And for us, we live a life in between as well. We have been delivered and freed from our slavery and bondage to sin, but we're not yet in the new heaven, new earth, this glorious promised land that we have to come. We're in the life in between. And this life in between is a life of trust, a life of dependence. And so we're looking at that in this whole series of the book of Numbers, Life in the Wilderness. And I just want to ask if you feel a sense of in your faith journey, in your life of following Jesus, you kind of feel like sometimes you're going along and everything is going well. You're kind of making your way in this life and maybe from the beginning it was going well and then at some point you just sort of feel like you got off track. At some point you feel like something got derailed in your journey of following Jesus and maybe that was from a lack of trust or maybe that was from some situation coming into your life or a hardship, something like that. I don't know. I don't know how you feel in that if you feel like at some point it's just sort of gotten off track from where it was at the beginning. The people of Israel have kind of gotten off track here. Uh, this, this pastor, author, friend of mine named Steve Carter wrote a book called The Thing Beneath the Thing. Like what's really going on beneath the thing that you think you're struggling with. And he, he talks about how in life, potholes in our life. So we're coming along, we hit a pothole. Depending on how we respond to that, it can become a sinkhole, right? And we sink all the way deep into it that sometimes there's these triggers, these potholes that come in and how does that sort of set us up to set us off is the way he puts it. And I think for the people of Israel, they, we're gonna see here, <laughs> they have some potholes in their journey that become major sinkholes for them in the way they respond and in the way that there are consequences even that come from God for them. So for you in your faith journey, you feel like, how does that work when you hit a, a pothole of some sort or something that sort of triggers you in some way? Is it completely setting you off where you are then just falling into a huge sinkhole and completely derailed in your faith? Now, I want us to look into how we can respond, hopefully maybe better than at least in some of these stories, how the people of Israel respond. And uh, we've called this today, Complaining to God. So I want us to actually look at this title as a positive thing because we want to shift from complaining about God to complaining to God. 
God can handle it. God's big enough. God wants to welcome that. But we see some kind of different ways and we'll learn some different things along the way here. So grab your Bible, uh, turn to Numbers 11 and maybe even actually we'll, we'll look at a couple of verses in chapter 10. There's Bibles in the back of the seats there in front of you if you want to grab one of those. Numbers is the fourth book of these 66 books that comprise the entire Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers right before Deuteronomy. So find that at the beginning, Numbers 10, and we'll just briefly look at verses 11 and 12. It says, In the second year, after Israel's departure from Egypt, on the 20th day of the second month, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle of the covenant. So the Israelites set out from the wilderness of Sinai and traveled on from place to place until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. We're going to talk a little bit more even next week about how the people are led and this whole cloud thing and how, how that all works. So I'm not going to dig into that, but it's really an interesting thing here. But they've been delivered from Egypt, right? They come out, the parting of the Red Sea, all that. They're going out and they come to Mount Sinai and they spend a long time there. They've been there for months and months. And they are given the law, the, the Ten Commandments, all of that, all these over 600 laws from God, right? Like all this has come in this time that they've been there. They've even made some mistakes and had some consequences for that. But now the journey is a beginning again. We're heading out. We're going to head again now towards the promised land. So it says they're, they're going. Now look at verse 31, chapter 10. No, 33, sorry. It says, They marched for three days after leaving the mountain of the Lord with the ark of the Lord's covenant moving ahead of them to show them where to stop and rest. Now go to chapter 11, verse 1. Three days of walking, soon the people began to complain about their hardship. And the Lord heard everything they said. We're going to read through this whole story. It says, Then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and he sent a fire to rage among them. And he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people screamed to Moses for help. And when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. After that, the area was known as Tabera, which means the place of burning. Because fire from the Lord had burned among them there. Then the foreign rabble. Now I'll explain that little term there because it's, it's unique and there's reasons. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh for some meat they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. The manna looked like small coriander seeds. And it was pale yellow like gum resin. The people would go out and gather it from the ground. They made flour by grinding it with hand mills or pounding it in mortars. Then they boiled it in a pot and made it into flat cakes. These cakes tasted like pastries baked with olive oil. The manna came down on the camp with the dew during the night. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, 
Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. <laughs> okay. We're going to skip a little bit because we're going to do this next chunk in a couple weeks too. Verse 31. Now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and all the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. They spread the quail all around the camp to dry. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Okay. Pretty wild story and uh, interesting story and dramatic, uh, dramatic speaking uh, to God by, by Moses. And we are going to dig into this of what this looks like to complain, what this looks like uh, to do that well, and what it looks like to, to trust in God in the midst of this. Because this needs to be, you can see, there's this life of depending on God for everything. The, the manna, the quail, everything they have comes from God. Now, some things I think we can see and learn. First off, I want to look at is that we are so easily influenced. Verse 4, just to remind ourselves, 11.4 says that part. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain, oh, for some meat. So we have this, this whole thing with this foreign rabble part, okay? So I want to like kind of clarify this a little bit. Like this is the only place in the whole Bible this like term or expression is used is in this part. And so it's that... Um, thinking that as they came out of Egypt and as they're making their way along, just some people from other, from other groups or other, other countries and nations joined in with them. Even Moses is married to a Midianite. And so, like, all these people are coming in with them. Now, God is not talking about, like, their ethnicity as being, like, a bad thing or something. What the people of Israel are, the people of Israel are the chosen people of God. Okay, and they have been set apart for a very specific purpose and God has called them to certain things that he's not like calling everybody else to. And he's having these people of God are supposed to walk with God and God is with them and he has a purpose for them. He's taking them to the promised land. And so then you've got people who aren't part of that, who probably are following other gods and aren't part of this chosen people of God. Now, remembering the Israelites, the people of Israel are the chosen people of God, not us, not like not Americans or something, okay, right? The people of Israel, they are the chosen people of God and they are, are set for a purpose. Now, these other people are coming in and they are, as you see, distracting or influencing them away. They're having them look back instead of forward toward this promised land, looking back to this time of slavery. And so we want to make sure that we, like them, are not being influenced by the wrong people or people who aren't trying to live for God, aren't called by God, aren't followers of Jesus that would distract us and influence us away because 
We need to be people who would trust in God and depend on him for all things. And that's where our eyes are to be fixed, where others aren't necessarily. Now, this whole thing with the manna and the quail. This, like, this, we can read about it first coming up in Exodus 16. Okay, so now we're here in this passage. So these people have been living this uh, life already of trusting in God for the manna. Now this talks about this sort of bread or like little coriander seeds are small, like BB size. So there'd be these coriander like seed size things and they gather it and then create little, little cakes and stuff with it. And that's what they have to live on. And it would come down every night and that's what they would have. It said they could only gather enough for that day. If they gathered more than that day, it would go rotten and bad and spoil and make them sick and all of that and be disgusting. And so then God is, what he's trying to do is get them to depend on him each day. Don't try and store up a bunch and trust in yourself or what you have. Trust in me. I will provide tomorrow. He would provide a double portion on the day before the Sabbath so they could collect enough that they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. And so then that's how they're living their everyday life, that kind of everyday dependence upon the Lord. Now, um, the quail, uh, just kind of thinking the quail would actually come like more occasionally. God gave them quail at certain times. It's, I, we don't really think that they had the quail every single day. And that's part of why they're, they're complaining and whining, like wanting meat so bad. And then even when, as we see here, God then provides the quail and they start to try to store it up, store it up, like try and have more, more, more until they can kind of trust in their, their supply and their hoard instead of trusting in that kind of daily dependence on God. And so they're, they're trying to live this kind of daily dependence, but then others are trying to say, oh, let's just, let's look back, right? Let's, let's remember what we had that, oh, that was so good, the meat and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and all the good flavors and all of that. And I wonder for you, are there voices in your life as you are on track, as you are heading along in your journey of faith? Are there voices that influence you? Even as you hit a hard point, a pothole in your faith journey that are just like, give up on that. Give up on that. Remember what you used to have. Why don't you live that way, except for that way was when you were in slavery. And so for you, how are you influenced? We live in a a world of influence. People and uh, forces trying to influence us in all sorts of ways all the time. We have professional influencers out there even. Although I'd say we've had professional influencers for a long time in sales and advertising and all of that. They just didn't call them that. And now we just have that on our social media kind of in front of us every second of every day that are trying to get us to buy something or be into a certain style or trend or whatever. But also they're influencing us when it comes to ideology or theology and what we think about God and how we should live in this world. And when you think about when it's social, when what is socially or culturally appropriate is more important to us than what God says is appropriate, that's when we know we've gotten off track, right? When we, when we care more about what the influencers or what our culture or society thinks than we care about what God thinks, we have been influenced too easily by the world around us. And so it's a moment to check, to examine yourself. A little later, we'll be taking communion, examining ourselves. Are we following the ways of the world or are we following the ways of the Lord? We are influenced so easily. We also forget so quickly. 
we tend to forget. The people of Israel forget so, so easily. Look at verse 5 again here in 11.5. It says, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. For free makes me want to vomit when they would say, remember what we had for free. You have to think back and remember what was going on. 400 years of slavery, generation after generation after generation were slaves. When your grandparents were slaves, your parents were slaves, you're a slave, your kids are slaves, and you know your grandkids are going to be slaves. That's the life they lived. They were being beaten and whipped and their quotas were being increased so they'd have to produce more and more. And their children, their baby boys were being murdered because they were growing to far too many people. Remember the fish we had for free. We forget. We forget so, so easily. It's about a year later and they already are thinking about fish when their kids were being murdered. Now, they also had forgotten, not just the hard stuff, but they forgot that God delivered them through his power, through his miracles, through his wonders, through these plagues, through parting the Red Sea, and he's taken them out, and he's been providing for them every day. Mount Sinai with the giving of the law, and the, like, for them to be able to see God and his power, and they actually went astray in some other parts there and weren't following God, and there were some pretty significant consequences. Potholes literally became sinkholes as there were chasms in the earth that they fell into. And so they've forgotten even that. They've forgotten the power of God and how God could provide for them in the midst of every moment. And it's almost like slavery was sort of normal for them, right? Like it had become, it was what they knew. Slavery was their life. And they think, gosh, I miss that old life. I miss the comforts of that life, even though that life was so hard. And I wonder for us if our slavery to sin was normal maybe for us or comfortable. The sin, the pleasures of this world, we think of them fondly and forgetting how God has delivered us from that and freed us from that bondage. We miss the pain because we lived with it for so long. It's kind of like um, this guy Cypher in The Matrix. I don't know if you've seen The Matrix, but um, this guy in The Matrix, this whole story is where, I mean, all like, they're living in this like computer program kind of thing where everything is like kind of nice and good and easy and regular life. But really in the real world, they are like having all of like their energy sucked out of their bodies to be food for robots. That's what it's about. Weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, like, he's, they've been freed from that and kind of set free, but the real world's kind of, kind of rough. The real world's pretty uncomfortable and the food's pretty terrible, actually. They just had this kind of sludge. Maybe it's a metaphor for the manna. And they, they were just like, oh, man, he he's, has this moment where he's, back, where he's back in the matrix, back in the computer program, and he's like, I just want steak, man. Put me back in. Put me back in. I don't care. I don't even care if I'm robot food. I just want to eat the steak. The steak is good, and I just want what's comfortable. And he said it's a better escape. 
And I wonder for you if like sometimes you feel that way, where the sort of the byproduct of our sin, of our slavery, is pleasure. And we care about those pleasures in some way, those enticements, more than we care about the freedom that we have in Christ. And so again, examining ourselves, where, where am I with that? James 1 says that the enemy is trying to lure you away and entice you. It's fishing language. Lure you away and entice you away from the truth. And that's what the enemy, the devil, is trying to, to get you to be lured away from the truth of what God has. It's so easy. So God says, remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. The people of Israel are given these reminders over and over. You're given reminders over and over. Remember, don't forget what God has done. Don't forget the slavery and don't forget the, the cost and the work of your freedom. And so when we look ahead, we think of Jesus, the work of Jesus through his perfect life, through his death upon the cross, and through his victory over sin and death, through the resurrection. We remember that, that God, very God, Jesus, Son of God, went upon the cross to take the sins of the world upon himself to cancel the, the debt that we would owe. Let's remember that. Don't forget when we long for cucumbers and melons. So what are cucumbers and melons? I think a lot of times it's the good things I used to have that I think about when I don't like what God is doing right now, right? Maybe these, these pleasures maybe that I used to have that I don't, I don't like what God's doing right now. And maybe it's even something like, I think a, a cucumber and a melon could be like money, where money isn't bad, but what about when God says, okay, I want you to take away your trust in money because I want you to depend on me and trust in me and in me alone. And so don't trust in, it was easy for you to trust in money before and now I've called you to something different. And so maybe sometimes that means God's calling you to some form of generosity or sharing with others that's stretching for you and you're like, okay, well, but I, but I trust in this thing. And God says, no, don't, don't trust in that trust in me. It could be our health. We've trusted in that. And when sometimes that changes can be difficult to depend on God or our success or certain relationships in our life. And God says, you know what? Maybe you don't need a melon right now. What you need is a desert. You need a desert to trust and depend on me. So sometimes in our life, these moments are a desert where God is helping us to trust in him. That we need life in the wilderness, this life in between of dependence on God. Because there's some consequences for the complaints, all right? There's some consequences for the complaints for these people and living a life just that's kind of going away from what God has called them to. Now, uh, this, is, this is a little bit of some hard stuff, but we look at it. If you look at verse 1, even, it's just, I'm just kind of listing where these things take place. But verse 1 is where you have this fire after the initial complaint. And then 31 to 35, you have this plague that comes after they were gorging themselves on the quail. And these come after their complaints about God, not to God. They're not complaining to God. But these, these consequences come that are pretty intense to us, especially as we read these things now of a fire coming upon the camp or a plague coming upon the people in these ways. Now, 
For us, we live in this new covenant mindset where we have this mindset of like where we are now with Jesus, where Jesus has come and we have grace, this, the beauty of grace, this mercy that we don't deserve. It's, it's incredible. But sometimes that can create in us a, a cheapening of what grace cost, right? Where we look at it and there should, uh, shouldn't there just, all, just always should be like easy and good for everyone. And I think that what we're seeing here is, is the wrath of God and this judgment of God and condemnation of God where we actually though are living under grace. Like it's amazing what God did to earn that grace for us. Right? There was a necessary wrath of God. And God has then said, okay, I want to take that, that wrath, that judgment, and I will come and I will pay the price myself. I will pay the price for that for you and deal with that and accomplish that and cover that for you. But let's not cheapen it by just kind of thinking that ah, I can do whatever I want. You know, I got grace. I can do whatever I want with it. And it's just like we sometimes want to like drift and like kind of dance and play close to the boundary. Like if this is the cliff, I'm going to fall off. And God said, hey, be careful. There's a cliff you're going to fall off, right? Like don't get too close to the cliff. God has established some rules, some boundaries, some ways to live. And he says like don't just dance around next to the cliff and then complain when you fall off. Right? Because there's a consequence. When you fall off the cliff, you hurt yourself. And so there are these earthly consequences that we have, even with grace. And that's kind of like where if you hurt someone, God will forgive you, but maybe that person won't. If you rob a bank, God will forgive you, but maybe you'll still go to jail. Right? That kind of stuff. There's these earthly consequences for our sin. And so just recognizing that we do have consequences here in the moment. But it is true that under Jesus, we have a grace so wonderful and so undeserved that we are so grateful for what God has done. And so as we live in this kind of world, we recognize, okay, I want to live according to God's ways. And I even want to then pray and complain in a way that would be appropriate. What is that? So let's talk about that a little bit. Complaint versus prayer, okay? Complaining about God versus complaining to God. And as we look through this story, you see in verse 1, it's, it's interesting. So you've got the, the verse 1 is where the, the complaint was not to God. It was about him, but God hears it. It's like God kind of overhears their complaining. And then you've got this fire coming. Now in response to that, it says the people scream out to Moses, save us. And God does. God stops and, and stops the fire and, and saves them. So there's this sense that now in the way that it worked back then in these people of Israel that Moses was this conduit, right? Moses was the way that they would sort of talk to God through, through Moses. Now with Jesus and with the veil in the temple being torn, we have direct access to God. And so for us, it's different today. So there's some things that are different about the way that they would relate to God than for us. We have the ability just to go to God completely directly and they were just complaining about God. But when they scream to Moses, it seems okay. And then in verse 5, they complain again as they're complaining about uh, the fish that we used to have. And it says then in verse 10 that Moses overhears this, this whining, this complaining, right? And it wasn't to Moses or to God. They're just complaining about 
God. And then God's like, fine. And he sends them like, here, let me, I'll kind of like shove a bunch of quail down your throats and you can, I'll give you what you want. Let's see how much you really want it. And then they react really negatively to that and begin to save it all up. And then this plague comes. Now, Moses, in, ver- in these middle verses of like 10 to 15 are these like super dramatic, you know, kind of whining, but it's to God where he's complaining about the people, but it's like straight talking to God and God seems to accept that. So this, he's like very dramatically complaining, but he's complaining directly to God. Then in chapter 12, which we're not covering today, but in chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, they complain again about what God is doing, about Moses. And they're not complaining to God or talking to God. They're just complaining and, and, and they're jealous. And then God brings a punishment and consequence upon them as well. And so you kind of see this pattern and you even see the pattern in the Psalms of David, right? The Psalms of David are very... Uh, many of them are kind of whiny, complaining, or dramatic, right? Like, uh, I was just looking at Psalm 13. Just listen to it. It just says, Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? You know, that's kind of how I like, (laughs) I I, like take it that way. Now, you could like sort of say it mockingly in that way, like forever. How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle? And all that. Now, it's real. How long? I mean, that can be a very real prayer, so I don't just mock it. We feel that way. God, how long will you forget me? I feel alone. I feel left behind. I feel like nothing is ever going my way. How long, Lord? Forever? And so that's real. And that, what I want you to see is what David says, what Moses says. All of these complaints that are even pretty dramatic in their delivery those are received by God and responded to, accepted by him. There's no plague or fire coming down upon them. So God can handle it when you complain. God can take your complaints. God can take your whining, but take it straight to him, right? It's like don't talk about God, talk to God. God wants us to take this to him. Bring your complaints to him with all all of your heart, all of the struggle that you have, not this sort of almost like gossiping or whining about God because what that shows us, I think, in these people, in, in this story, is you see a lack of gratitude for what he has done for them, a lack of perspective of where they've come from slavery and now where they are, a lack of a recognition of who God is and the power of God in their life. I mean, they've just completely lost the entire plot of what God has been doing and only in the last year, God says, they've forgotten. And so let us be people who remember that and have ways that we remember what God has done for us. Because that kind of whining, that's not prayer. That's just sort of me telling my friends how much I hate what God does when he doesn't do what I want, right? Like it's that kind of, it's that kind of talk about God. And so I think, okay, what do I complain about to others about God or just about my situation? You know, and I don't know. I just, I think in my life, I want you to think in your life. And I think, like, oh, I'm just like, I'm tired of physical pain you know, it's just only been a few months for me where I feel like I'm just like in physical pain all the time and I'm frustrated. And I'm like, God, that's, a, that's and I know people are like, it made me recognize like there's people in this room that have been physical pain probably for years. And that's wearing and, and frustrating. And like, it's these, these things are like the why God sort of things. People that are sick or people that we've lost. Lord, why God? 
and that's when we begin to ask these why questions, they can be okay. But take it to the Lord. Don't just be angry about him, but take it to him. So do I trust where God is leading me or do I not trust? Like what's going on? Do I understand how God is providing for me? Having that sense of perspective of who God is and what he's doing, the greater kind of eternal perspective of all these things and beginning to build up in myself some trust and gratitude in God. Trying to cultivate that sense of, okay, Lord, I trust in what you are doing. Lord, I'm grateful for what you have done and looking back and remembering and not just thinking like, ah, I wish I had fish for free again. When maybe you were a total slave being whipped and beaten into submission by sin. Cultivate that sense of trust and gratitude. And remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. And we, as we've talked about even this month, have ways to remind yourself of the love of God. Of what God has done, the great victories God has done in your life. How the work of Jesus has set you free. And so communion, which we're about to participate in now, communion is this primary way we have to remember, right? To remember what Jesus has done. That's why we have this practice of communion is to say, okay, I want to be thankful as Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks. And so we're thankful for what God has done. We have gratitude for that. But we also remember so that we don't forget the work of Jesus, and the price of our freedom. That our freedom, our grace, is not free. Even as Ephesians 2 says, it's free gift, but it costs somebody. It costs Jesus, and he gives it to you for free. And so let's remember. And so now what we're going to do is we'll take some time here to sing a song or just even reflect on and sing a song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I encourage you to get the, your elements of communion kind of just out and ready and, and ex- do some self-examining, right? Some examining. Where am I, Lord? What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in you? How have I forgotten what you've done? So let's pray. Prepare our hearts now. And then after this song, I'll come and lead us in the taking of communion. Oh, Lord God, I am so, so grateful for what you have done. Your miraculous works, your wonders, the deliverance of the people of Israel, God, and the way that you have chosen them and prepared them and taken them along, that then you sent your son to be part of them and through you, Lord Jesus, have set us free. And so we remember, Lord, and we are thankful. And I pray now that you would help us to just Spend some time in examination. Spend some time in repentance and confession, Lord. That we would not take communion in an unworthy manner. Lord, we bring our complaints. We bring our frustrations. We bring our whining just directly to you, God. Our why questions come directly to you. Help meet us even in those questions that are unanswerable, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name.